Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. And welcome everybody back to another episode of Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. As always, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the show wherever you are all around the world. I really, really appreciate it. You know, I absolutely love doing this podcast because it connects me with people who have the same passion for animals, who work with them on a daily basis, who literally dedicate their lives to them. And I'll tell you what, I had such a good time talking to our podcast guest that we have today, Dr. Lori Marker. She is the founder and executive director of the Cheetah Conservation Fund, and You know, she is a living example that one individual can seriously make a difference. And so she's been working with cheetahs for over 45 years. So a really, really long time. And when she started working with cheetahs, you know, a lot of stuff was not known about them. And today they are in a steep decline. I think she said we have 74, 7,500 cheetahs left on our planet. That's right. Less than 8,000 cheetahs are left on our planet. And so back in the day, I believe she started, let's see, she started in the 70s. You know, she started this program and it's so inspirational because she really did make a difference. And what is so neat is that Dr. Marker actually established the most successful captive cheetah breeding program in North America. And the thing was, is when she started, Cheetahs did not do well in captivity. They often died. They did not breed well. And she wanted to see if she could establish a program to see if they could captive breed the cheetahs and then release them, the offspring, back into the wild. And she has done this. She has done some groundbreaking things, including taking a captive-born cheetah and teaching it how to hunt to be reintroduced into the wild in Africa. It's really interesting. And, you know, I really... Hope all of you out there who, you know, listen to the show, I know a lot of young scientists listen to the show, a lot of, you know, people who want to work with animals, a lot of you feel like, oh man, I mean, could I really make a difference? Just look at all these negative things that are happening right now, habitat loss for all the animals, you know, just uh, human-animal conflict, all these negative things we hear about on the news, climate change, hello, And, you know, some of us might feel discouraged, like, you know, can I really make a difference? And I'll tell you what, yes, you can. And our guest today is living proof that one person can make a difference. So I hope you all enjoy my interview with Dr. Lori Marker from the Cheetah Conservation Fund. Thank you so much for taking the time to do the interview. Well, you know a bit about us. How did this come about? Again, I'm just coming out of the blue. I don't know... Well, um, yeah, from the bush, <laughs> <laughs> from the bush. Well, I'll tell you what, I've known about the cheetah conservation fund for a long time. Cheetahs have always been a popular topic on the podcast and I really wanted to really? talk. Yes. I, I really right. wanted to talk to you because you are a pioneer and you have dedicated your life to cheetahs. According to my, okay. To your website, you've been working with cheetahs for 45 years. Long time. Yep. 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 Wow. Where do we begin with your career? I mean, was it always cheetahs when you were growing up? No. Um, I'm, I've been, I grew up riding horses, so I'm an animal person. So I had lots of animals, dogs and goats and rabbits and 
I was going to be a veterinarian and I ended up at the wildlife safari um, in their veterinary clinic. And that's the first time I met cheetahs and found out about them and they took my heart. Yeah, and that and was my life, but beyond that. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say because you dedicated your whole life. So, was it just cheetahs? Were you also interested in other big cats, or just for some reason cheetahs were like, "Wow, this is like where I need to be. This is what I want to work with." Well, no, because I was at this wildlife park. I was involved with a bunch of other cats too: tigers, lions, mountain lions, bat bobcats, um, and though nobody knew anything about cheetahs. And so I think that's what fascinated me most is that I kept asking about cheetahs. Nobody could give me any answers. And so kind of short, I mean that I basically wrote to people around the world and people said, when you find out something about cheetahs, let us know. So that created a lifetime of knowledge and trying to share it and kept putting books out and sharing with people everything I can share about the cheetah with anybody who wants to hear. So what did you want to learn about the cheetah? Were your questions about them in captivity, their wild status? Is that what was going on? Well, yeah, everything. I mean, I kept wondering about them. They didn't breed well in captivity. Nobody could tell me anything about them. And um, they would say, really, there were so few in captivity. Even though people had had them for like 5,000 years, nobody knew anything about them. So they didn't have a very long lifespan. They got a lot of diseases they didn't breed well and we were losing them in the wild and nobody could help nobody cared really they just said if you find something out about them let us know that was a long time ago there wasn't a lot known about anything back then and so i guess being a pioneer i opened the doors on a lot of different species but the cheetah was what um took my my life when i started this back in the early 70s nobody knew what a healthy free-ranging cheetah ever looked like so our research and data has brought that forward to be able to be the baseline for what health of a free-ranging cheetah looks like and how we could emulate that in zoos. So how long, okay, so you arrive at the Wildlife Safari Park in Winston, Oregon, correct? That's right. How many cheetahs did they have at that time? Oh boy, hmm, four, five, six, maybe six, maybe eight, I guess. And so you were immediately drawn to them when do you decide to say you know what i need to venture out on my own and move to africa and start the cheetah conservation fund that's a huge leap well and it was took a number of years so um my first time in namibia was in 1977 and so at that point in time i was doing a research project where i taught a cheetah how to hunt that had been born in captivity but when that brought me into Namibia, and that is where I realized that farmers were killing cheetahs like flies without even any reason. Um, it was a just what people did. You see a predator, you kill a predator, and they had no idea that the cheetah was uh, vulnerable. Again, Namibia at that point in time was in a state of war and trying to get their independence, and so um, the cheetah was just a predator that they'd see and they'd kill. So hundreds of cheetahs were being killed per year when I was there in the 70s. And from that, coming back to America, I thought if I told somebody, everybody, anybody, that someone would actually go out there and try to help save the cheetah. What I found um, at that point in time, that there is no um, someone, um, I call that the they factor, that they will take care of it, and there is no they, 
And so I realized that if we were going to save the cheetahs, something had to be done. And so it was still another close to 10 years that I finally set up the Cheetah Conservation Fund. But in those meantime, I traveled back and forth to Namibia and to other range countries throughout Africa, trying to find out a lot more about the problems facing the cheetah outside of Namibia and these other countries. They were all similar, loss of habitat human-wildlife conflict, people were killing them, nobody knew anything about them. Back in America, I started collaborating with colleagues from the Smithsonian and the National Cancer Institute to study more about the basic biology of the cheetah, and that's where we discovered the lack of genetic diversity, the problems facing them um, with reproductive abnormalities, uh, disease susceptibilities, and that's when we said, well, we need to find out more about what a healthy animal looks like out in the wild, which started my research in 1991 here in Namibia. But um, I then moved from Oregon to the um, Smithsonian, to the Washington, D.C. area. And um, from there, working in um, Washington, D.C., and trying to work also back and forth with Namibia. Namibia was not independent at that point in time. And when Namibia did get its independence in 1990, that's when I set up the foundation and said, at that point, I'm going to go to Namibia and help save the cheetah. But it was a process that, again, I didn't know that I was going to be the one who was going to do it. I thought that there was a they that there's some big organization that was going to go save the world, but nobody does it unless somebody picks the ball up and does it themselves. That's why you're such an inspiration. That's why I wanted to have you on the podcast because we have so many young listeners. Like one person can really make a difference. Well, yeah, absolutely. But you, you know, it's amazing what drive and passion and maybe ignorance um, and fortuitedness, I guess, just works out for you. Uh, because when I did move there finally and set up the foundation, really, I mean, I had really no funding or anything. I sold all my belongings and put that into an old Land Rover and went door to door and talked to the farmers about why they were killing cheetahs. And um, it is rather interesting because nobody had ever done anything like that before. People had had studies in national parks and were looking at animals through binoculars and gee aren't they beautiful and counting them and but with that nobody was thinking about what it was like to save a species and I think that our programs have been a model for many um, conservation organizations worldwide and young biologists realizing that people can make a difference. Yeah I mean so were they having a very bad effect like with the livestock or were other predators coming in and were the cheetahs being blamed for it because they were seen but from what I know, do cheetahs, cheetahs rarely scavenge, correct? Is that true? Right. They're not a scavenger. They can yeah. only kill uh, and and eat fresh prey. But um, there is a perceived, and so a lot of it is the perceived um, threat to their livestock. So cheetahs have huge ranges. So they're covering um, home ranges of about 800 square miles in what their movements are. And putting that into perspective in Namibia, they're covering about 20 farms. And the farmers would, in each of those farms, let's say, are about 10,000 acres. And so um, the farmers actually, because they're a daytime hunter and the cheetahs were covering lots of areas, they and they'd come back and forth into these different areas, um, the farmers always thought that there were more cheetahs. But they were seen during the day, and again, every predator is a bad predator. So remember back in the 70s, uh, and I think that the awareness has been 
maybe brought about more maybe in the last 10 years is that predators were something that we as humans have killed forever. We hate predators. We're afraid of predators. What we don't know, we kill. And so that was really, you know, my grandfather, my great-grandfather just says kill all predators. So since the cheetahs were easily to be seen during the day, they also have a behavior that they go to what are called marking trees. Um, in Namibia, they're also called play trees, newspaper trees, where they go and leave their scat urine. And from that, the farmers found that they could easily set up cage traps there. And if you caught one cheetah, you could catch an entire family. Once they caught them, they would just kill them. So it became an easy thing to do. Um, also adding into that was that in the 60s and early 70s, um, there was purchase of these animals into zoos. And so there were game dealers that were actually encouraging farmers to trap the cheetahs and then they could try to sell them. But in the 1972, when the first CITES laws went into effect that stopped the export of any wild animals or import into other countries, that then the farmers had figured out how to catch these animals and then it was easier to just kill them. Is it hard? And I'm sorry, I'm like listening to this story and it just mirrors what's going on where I'm from in Idaho regarding wolves. I mean, it's like smoke a pack a day and we've done yep. actually our most listened to episode. I uh, interviewed someone from the Wolf Conservation Center and people were just at each other. I mean, you know, and I tried to look at both sides. I interviewed someone from the Conservation Center and I actually interviewed a hunter, which was hard. But I mean, so my question for you is, is it's hard to put your emotions aside when you're talking to these farmers? Like at first, was it just like... You just wanted to scream and say, stop killing these animals. Well, no. Um, yes and no. I mean, um, you know, I'm a farmer by training as well. And so, um, you know, I love my goats. <laughs> and um, and therefore, I went into it actually looking at both sides and trying to understand, was it perceived? What it, was it real? What were the problems? And were there any solutions? And had anybody actually found those solutions? And so by talking to the farmers, my interest was not just to go in there and say, um, stop killing the cheetah. I wanted to know why, and I wanted to know what their systems looked like. And if I could understand the farming systems, it would allow me to understand a little bit better on why they were perceived as such a great threat. And that's where kind of understanding their whole ecology and, and then the farmers farming systems. What kind of wildlife was on the land? Um, where were their water points? How did they protect their calves? Um, what were the cheetahs catching? And cheetahs can only, and most predators, can really only catch calves under like nine months of age. Cheetahs, it's usually under um, six months, and 90% of all of the calves that were killed were under one month of age. Cheetahs can also catch small stock, goats and sheep. So, if indeed you can protect your calves for that first month by having a calving season and maybe keeping them in a calving corral, having a herder with them, then you actually have reduced your losses by 90% by just knowing what the cheat is getting at what point in time and how you protect your vulnerable livestock. And then for the um, small stock, we found that... Um, that many people didn't have herders or they're maybe not protecting their livestock good enough in a corral at night. And those then became part of what we looked at in helping them 
figure out a way so they didn't have to lose their livestock. So I actually look at it from another side. Um, I wasn't really, I didn't really want them killing cheetahs, but I also didn't want them losing their livestock because livestock management, I mean, as a, as a livestock manager myself, I mean, I would be not real happy if I was losing my livestock because I'd number one, like them, but it's also a livelihood. And so if I could figure out a way around that, then um, they wouldn't have to kill the cheetah and other predators. So I didn't just go after them and say, don't kill the animals. Um, I tried to provide them with opportunities so that they didn't lose their livestock. That's so smart to go in like that. You're better than how I would be at first impression. I mean, I would be like, stop. But no, you do have to look and you have to reason with them. That, that completely makes sense. And that's probably why this has been such a successful conservation organization. Well, I think so. I mean, I, I mean, definitely working with people is um, 99% of the success around it. And the animals are okay if you can deal with the people issues. And, you know, the reason why we deal with people also um, is that 90 or 80% of all the cheetahs are living outside of protected areas. So it's not like they are in protected areas um, and thriving. Most of the cheetahs are found outside of protected areas, and that's why we have to work with people and the livestock and to look at wildlife management because um, if you're protecting your livestock, you also have to have enough wildlife for a predator to eat. And in Namibia, we do have a good um, abundance of wildlife. Actually, our laws in Namibia have encouraged our wildlife populations to actually increase. And therefore, if you have management of your livestock and good wildlife management, a predator has something to eat and it doesn't have to be your livestock. Absolutely. How was how tourism there in Namibia? How I mean, when 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 you arrived, would, I mean, was that bringing in well, some there, substantial income for cheetahs or no? No. Well, when I moved there again in 1990s, when Namibia got its independence from South Africa, prior to that there had been a war, and so it was a not a safe zone, and people were not going to Namibia as tourists. Um, so it was very low. The tourist business was very low. Um, in 1990, at independence, um, and the safety and security of our country um, became great. We're probably one of the safest places in the world, Namibia. Um, it, tourism has continued to grow, and it has been a great uh, part of, of the country's economy. Although, remember, the cheetahs are still living outside of protected areas on private lands. And with that, I still don't think that the private landholders are making um, probably the amount of money that they could if they could show cheetahs on their land because the cheetahs are still covering 20 farms and out of those 20 farms, some of the people might still be killing them. And therefore, it does still create a problem. And that's why we're trying to look at incentives. So incentives around them not killing cheetahs and that would encourage tourism to have people see cheetahs more in the country. But as a whole, Namibia is, our tourism is great. Lots and lots of wildlife and our wildlife parks are wonderful. Our private reserves and private farms are great where people can go to a private guest house and see wildlife. So you can see from the coast and the dunes to, you know, ocean to elephants. So it's a, a great country. Everyone should come and visit. I am ready to pack my bags and you have a unique program 
And with the Cheetah Conservation Fund, and I actually interviewed somebody on the show. Her name was Erin. She's called the Cheetah Whisperer <laughs> on Instagram, and she's so passionate about cheetahs. But she really talked so highly of her experience there. And talk a little bit about what that program entails, what people could do. Well, we have an internship and volunteer program that people come and work with us on all the different aspects. We are a um, 100,000 acre working ranch and so we do have our livestock we have livestock guarding dogs which we breed and raise and place with farmers and that this is our 25th year of our livestock guarding dog program so we are celebrating the success that we've had with our dogs um, we breed them and place them with the farming community and the dogs grow up with livestock to reduce livestock losses to predators with the farmers and so um, we also have orphan cheetahs at our park, at our center, where we have right now 37 cheetahs that need to be cared for. And we've got an education center. We have school children. We've got farmers, college universities visiting us on a regular basis. And then we also have things like a veterinary clinic and a genetics laboratory. So we've got ongoing programs with our ecology, understanding the, the prey base, the wildlife that's on our land, as well as monitoring um, uh, the different predators, the cheetahs being our primarily um, group that we work with. But we also work to try to reduce conflict with the African wild dog, the, the painted dog, which is, again, one of the most critically endangered species on Earth, um, where we uh, have wild dogs in our care. And we do a lot of community-based work. Right now, we've just started a vaccination program out in our eastern communal lands, um, also in the past known as Herrero land, where we are doing rabies vaccinations and will soon, we hope this year, start a spay and neuter clinic to assist the rural community in the areas where um, their domestic animals causes a problem with our wildlife species, like the wild dogs and the cheetahs. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot going on. Um, so people are welcome to find out more about our volunteer programs or university students, obviously, we get a lot of um, university students from around the world working on a variety of different aspects, whether it's animal care um, or um, ecology, um, uh, wildlife management, or veterinary work. So all of those aspects. I mean, we like people who like business. Um, we've got also very interesting programs in our habitat restoration where we are trying to help re um, restore much of the habitat that has been overgrazed by the livestock in this arid land um, where we are as well. Mm -hmm. Can we go back to the livestock dogs? Because I'm yes. so curious, was this your idea to do this or did you see this in other programs and want to implement it in Namibia? Well, I was in Oregon and the livestock guarding dog program actually started um, in Oregon Oregon back in the 70s in collaboration with the Livestock Guarding Dog Association, which is based out of Hampshire um, or Amherst, Massachusetts. And so I had seen these dogs working in Oregon, which is a where I was based, a very big sheep farming community. And so in watching how the dogs were doing, I thought, man, I think these dogs actually could work over um, in Namibia. And so in working with the farming community, I suggested that we give it a try. And I brought the dogs in, in 1994, a group of 10 the first year. And from that, um, 
the program was very successful, and we have um, continued to succeed, bring uh, new bloodlines in, but have now bred and placed um, about 650 of these dogs in the past 25 years. So it's been a, a big program, a big process, and um, we monitor it very closely, um, and probably more so than anyone in the U.S. ever did, uh, but just showing that it can work and it works very well, not only just to protect livestock from cheetahs, but from all the other predators, from leopards and baboons, um, jackals, caracal, but the dogs work very well. Um, and we even say, even against domestic dogs, which often are a big problem for livestock, especially here in the United States, but also in Africa. So um, it you know, 25 years ago, when I brought the program in, I had just seen it work in Oregon and thought that it would be very successful in Namibia, and it has been. Yeah, I was going to ask if it works for other for other predators, but you said yes. That's great. And even for the wolves there in here in the United States against coyotes too. So those are very important um, programs that we brought forward that have now been modeled. We've helped develop a really successful program in South Africa. Um, we tried to get the program going up in Tanzania. We've seen a lot of people here in the United States actually start looking at the use of the dogs and watching what we've done. Um, people in Europe are using them. They are a European breed. We use a Turkish breed called the Anatolian Shepherd or the Kangal Dog, um, which have been used for about 5,000 years in Turkey. But because of the work that we've done, we've actually brought this back into people's um, thinking about living with predators. So protecting your livestock is something that can be done. And the use of dog or dogs, if you're working with wolves, you need a multiple number of dogs. And then again, looking at how that fits into your whole um, livestock management program. Uh, as I always say, it's not a silver bullet. It is one piece of a integrated management system that needs to be used and encouraged for our farming communities. And I'd like to say that that then could be reinforced through our consumers who are buying meat in the world by realizing that all the meat that everybody's eating is killing all of our predators everywhere in the world. And predators are actually very important to maintain a healthy ecosystem and to helping um, promote biodiversity. So where you have a top predator and a healthy ecosystem, your biodiversity within that system is much healthier. And top predators allow for that to occur. So um, I always feel that um, having um, good protection and pr taking care of your livestock is very important. And the livestock guarding dogs have been uh, an amazing part of this process and can be used in many other places in the world. That's great. Do you know how successful it is? Like 90% success rate, 95, or have you done um, any of that we research? We do every dog, and for 25 years, <laughs> we keep being the data going. Yeah. Um, and it is, it's an ongoing process. Um, but what we find is between about 75 to 100% success rate of having the dogs. And the dogs know what to do. We have to train the farmers in how to monitor and raise the dogs up. Mm -hmm. 
And um, again, it's not a silver bullet. It's a piece of an integrated program. But the dogs don't need training necessarily. The farmers need to be trained to know how to best um, care for their dogs so that the dogs do the right thing. Mm -hmm. Have you seen the population of cheetahs increase since you first visited Namibia in in the 1970s? Well, we have seen the population stabilize and we've seen the killing um, reduce, but the numbers of cheetahs have not necessarily accelerated because of a variety of other issues. We've seen range changes where they've moved over into um, the western areas of the country where they were not found previously because of, um, well, they were a long time ago, but they, because of the lack of wildlife and um, and poor livestock management, they'd been killed out. But so we are seeing a change in the range over to the west. Um, we've also seen, though, an increase of leopards um, in the central farmlands where the cheetahs have historically been. And with that, we're seeing conflict now with the leopards quite a bit, where the leopards have been um, killing cheetahs fairly regularly, and that has caused us some problem. This is probably because the leopards, again, have come back into areas where they were not in previous years. They've been killed out. And the cheetahs are naive. And so there is a bit of naivety with that. And from that, um, we are, again, watching, we hope, a stabilization of the population. How many can grow, I'm not sure, because there's still always going to be that numbers of habitat, numbers of prey, and how many we're all going to balance out so that a predator can have enough prey to eat. So you mean an adult leopard, like killing an adult cheetah? Yes, 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 yes. Really? Yeah. More times than I want to be able to tell. Are you serious? So will they eat the cheetah? Because don't they usually eat about, you know, will they eat the car or is it just, they'll just kill it? They'll kill, but they, you know, might bite into it, but usually it's mostly just killing. I've never heard of that. I, I mean, I've knew of, of leopards doing that with cubs, but never adult cheetahs. Yeah, and you know, if you're in a game reserve, that's the big problem. Also, is that lions and hyenas will, and can catch adult cheetahs and cubs. So the cubs are also very vulnerable. But the cubs are also vulnerable to things like baboons, which will grab them and pull them apart. So, you know, baboons are pretty nasty creatures. We like baboons too. So it's just how you get to know them, and how you live with them, and how you understand their behaviors. So everything's a bit about understanding um, the behavior and and how they're all living together and trying to make a plan. Because it it would be very hard to be a cheetah in the wild because they're at the bottom of the totem pole, correct? Regarding the big cats or just the predators in Africa? Yep. Yep, yep, yep. They're not an aggressive animal. That's what they've got speed for is they can get away from a situation, but they are not an animal that is an aggressive animal. They will not fight for anything that they have. Okay. So I want to pick your brain for a second. Can I do that? Okay. (laughs) Are you ready? What about the Asiatic cheetah? I mean, I know they are critically endangered. Can we talk a little bit about that? Because a lot of people don't realize that there are a few um, in the Middle East, correct? Well, they're found in Iran, and that's the last of the Asian cheetahs, and there are only probably about 50 of them left. So they are critically endangered, and um, we've been working with the team there for, uh, I'm going to say, you know, 10 to 15 years, 
And we at least now know where they are, been doing camera trap studies. Yeah, right now it's really critical because some of our colleagues are in jail in Iran because of setting up camera traps. And they've been in jail for about a year, and um, it's very, very concerning um, that they were um, put in jail, thought to be a part of espionage and using the camera traps to spy on the country. We um, are trying hard to let people know and the government that that's not the case. But um, right now it's very scary. But the cheetahs in Iran are critically endangered. And, um, you know, genetically they are very similar. All the cheetahs are very similar. There are four subspecies of cheetahs. But the cheetah, interestingly, went through a, a few bottlenecks Back around you know ten to twelve thousand years ago, leaving very few left in the populations, then grew back from those numbers. And the cheetah is a species that is genetically all the same. And so, with that, we do see a little bit of um, structure difference within the population in Iran and the um, Asiatic cheetah versus that of the other three sub um, species. But genetically, they all look to be very, very similar. So that population could actually be augmented um, if politics were not running the world in such a way that conservation could assist these populations better. Yeah, I was going to ask, are there any like major physical differences? And you said, no, they look pretty much no. as, really right. same and, size. Uh, well, yeah, they're, they're a good-sized cat, unlike in the um, northern parts of Africa, we see uh, the cheetah being a smaller animal, but they're living in um, more extreme deserts, and the prey base is much less. And so there we've seen the, the cheetahs to be smaller. And But the Iranian cheetah is a good-sized cat, and um, again, they're very adapted to um, fluctuating temperatures, the areas that they're living in, there, there's snow up in these mountains, so they do get a very thick winter coat as well. Uh, but they look very similar to those that we see down in southern Africa. Wow, that's just, yeah, just incredible. I definitely wanted to ask you about that. What Do you have any advice for any young scientist wanting to pursue a similar career that you have, like, you know, conserving a species or starting an, an organization? Well, I guess I'm an applied conservationist. So the public, education, awareness, uh, policy. So I guess that those, in my opinion, would be the areas to really more focus on. And most of these animals are, you know, dealing with human issues. And so we've got to actually address the human issues where it is um, overlapping with that of the survival of these different species as well. Um, with that, another area that we've been very work hard at working on with the cheetah survival is um, the populations out of the Horn of Africa, which are small populations in that area, um, the um, northeastern part of, of Africa, where they're being smuggled out of some of these populations as cubs into the Middle East. And so these become a status symbol for people wanting to have a cheetah as a pet. And um, that's become a huge problem for the population. So that looks at, you know, awareness and policy and, and politics. But then how to work on the ground with people who are, you know, very, very poor and possibly see a cheetah cub and can grab it and then find somebody who's going to buy it illegally. So there's so many different issues 
to that we're facing at this point in time. And most all of them revolve around people and policies. So, I mean, just back on the people keeping them as pets, I'm happy you touched on that. They obviously don't make good pets. I mean, are they having issues with like, like, I don't know, like, is there like cheetah rescues in the Middle East for people who get an animal? Like, for instance, my background is an animal rescue. So I have a lot of rescued reptiles, like alligators people bought as, you know, cute little babies. And now they're 10 and a half feet, right. you know, et cetera. Is there organizations like that in the Middle East where like cheetah rescues for people who have unwanted cheetah pets? No, they have cheetah pets, but usually they don't live very long because the people don't know how to take care of them. You understand that too with reptiles. But these cubs come in, um, for every one cub that might make it into the Middle East as a pet, probably four to five might die getting there. We're seeing up to 300 animals going through this pet trade on an annual basis. And once they even make it into the pet trade, the people don't know how to take care of them. Um, they don't know how to get them the right vaccines, the right nutrition, and we see most of them dying under two years of age. And those are primarily nutritional problems um, and lack of, of um, proper facilities, pens, and so it becomes a real critical problem along that line. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's awful. Well, I'm happy, you, you know, you're definitely, you know, you are raising awareness. Can we go back really quick? Because you are credited with you took a captive cheetah, brought it to Namibia, and you actually taught it how to hunt? Well, yeah, that was back in the early 70s, or middle 70s. And um, it was the first of its kind of research. It was to find out um, if a captive-born animal could go back out into the wild. And so it was a fascinating. Um, at that point in time, as I said, we couldn't even breed cheetahs in captivity. So... Where I was living in Oregon at the Wildlife Safari, we had one of the few breeding programs in the world going. And when I came back, because I'd realized, yes, I could teach how to hunt, but first, we needed to get them breeding. Um, and second, why weren't we keeping wild animals living in the wild, which I thought was probably the most important thing to do versus trying to take an animal and rewilding it. But then again, coming back to the zoo background is that People needed to find out if we could breed the animals. When I got started in Oregon, we had the 17th litter ever to be born in captivity. The Wildlife Safari is number still one of the main breeding facilities in the world. Still, we need a place to put them back out in the wild. So you need a habitat and, and prey base and a safe place away from people. And all of those things are not there. We're losing land we're losing habitat we've got more and more human population we've got more livestock on the land so um yes we can put animals back in the wild and our research continues in namibia on our rewilding we've just put four female cheetahs back out in the wild a week ago and um about a month before that we put three male cheetahs back out into the wild so we are continually monitoring this, our rewilding program, which are orphan cheetahs, not bottle-raised orphans, but orphan cats that have a chance for reintroduction. Um, in the last 10 years, we've put about 60 cheetahs back, and we have very good data on that. But um, again, finding a place for them to go into is a very difficult process, and it is a hard process on those animals. We've had about a 75% success rate with this. However, still, when you lose an animal, it's very painful. I would say extremely painful. And how many, I mean, just what is the estimated world population of wild cheetahs? Oh, the world's population is less than 7,500 individuals. Wow. And 
Yeah, and they're found in about 23 countries in 31 populations. And of that, about 20 of those populations are under 100 individuals. So fragmentation um, is key. Again, loss of habitat, loss of prey. In some of these animals where these populations are living, there's no prey for them to eat, and so they are trying to survive on rabbit um, or hare, and that's not even enough to feed themselves, much less a reproductively um, active female if she has cubs. There's not enough for her to even feed her cubs. So these are all big issues that we look at in trying to actually, you know, save a species. I mean, what does it take to save a species? And it is, you know, not just knowing that they are out there, they're hunting what they're hunting, but it's trying to find a place for them to live for the future. And that is um, our mission and what our, when CCF turned 25 years, a couple years ago, our motto was, you know, save the cheetah, change, change the world. So we've got to have a change in the world if indeed not only the cheetah but many of our species are going to live. For the cheetah, they cover huge areas. And so within a cheetah's range, you can save lots of different animals. But the world has to change so that these large landscapes are actually available for the different species that need them, like cheetahs, the African wild dog, um, elephants, rhinos, there's a lot that needs to happen. And then we have to curb things like illegal wildlife trade and trafficking. Um, from another point that you'd said, we do have a sanctuary that we've had to set up now up in Somaliland, where we have rescued cheetahs from the illegal wildlife trade, that we now have um, 17 cheetahs living at this center right now. And, you know, it's it's scary, because just in the last two weeks we've gotten another seven cheetahs in so i mean these animals just keep coming and um, we've got to try to stop this this trade in any way we can i mean i could imagine that it would be hard to take an animal that someone had as a pet and then try to re-release it i mean that must be extremely difficult correct yeah and it doesn't work it doesn't if work, you've got yeah. a pet animal um, number one, how that animal's been raised as a pet, and many of these people don't know how to take care of them. So there are nutritional issues in many of the animals that are um, at rescue centers. Um, or if you get it young enough and you give it the proper care, many of these cubs, you know, they, they become habituated because you bought, you know, had to bottle raise them, and they're not release candidates. Um, and so, you know, those all become real big issues on, you know, Again, if you're going to put an animal back, where is it going to go? Is there a safe place? Is there enough prey? How does it learn how to hunt? How much time do you put into this? So they're all they're all big questions. Yeah, <laughs> Dr. Lori Marker, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to come on the show. Great. Well, thank you, and it's nice to meet you. And do have people go to our website, so cheetah.org, um, and there's all kinds of things that people can do to help us, like become a volunteer, um, if you've got students out there, uh, we do work with a variety of universities around the country for internships. Um, help us. We need money to do what we do. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, adopt a, an Anatolian shepherd to put out on a, a ranch. Um, help us sponsor some of these orphan cheetahs so that we can feed them and care for them for their, their life or work on helping us with a radio collar so that when we do with a release, put the animal out, 
there's a lot that we need help with and we need people who are willing to help. Um, and really, you know, we need, we need a lot of help from this side, this developing world. There are resources here. Everybody is always saying, oh, we don't have money or anything. Well, I can tell you what it looks like where I live where people don't have money. And there's always still ways that people can get involved. So um, every little bit helps. And we ask for people to get involved with us to help save the cheetah and change the world. So Dr. Market, where can people see you in the United States? Well, I am traveling through the United States on my annual lecture tour for the next um, about month and a half. And so I'll be from the West Coast, East Coast. I'll be in um, New York and Washington, D.C., um, Northern California, Southern California, Denver, Arizona, um, Dallas, Texas. So I'm a, a bit everywhere. And our website has all that information on the places I'm going to be. And if you want to see me, ask. Yeah, that's great. My goodness. Are you ever tired of traveling? Um, I'm always tired of traveling, but I have to travel <laughs> to get people to know about cheetahs. So, yeah. so I want everyone to come to Namibia. Absolutely. Are you, are you excited to go back home to Namibia? I'm always. Oh, I can't wait to be home. But I just got here, so I have a couple months ahead of me. Well, enjoy your time in the States. Thank you for all you do for cheetahs and conservation, just spreading awareness. Thank you. Let's talk again. Thanks for listening to the Animals to the Max podcast. Please make sure to hit subscribe and leave a rating. It really helps me out. I also encourage you to check out CorbinMaxi.com. You can contact me there personally, even suggest a podcast guest, or if you just want to learn more about animals.